This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. So welcome, everyone, and thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I'm Jennifer Shemansky, your host for today's pod. And joining me today for this fourth MSP Network podcast, which will be focused on structured settlement annuities, are Jeff Livingston and Jason Lazarus. Jeff is a structured settlement consultant with the Arcadia Settlements Group. He has been in the insurance industry for over 25 years in both claims and structured settlements, and he works primarily in the Southeast. And Jason is the founder and CEO of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy works with trial lawyers across the country in dealing with issues that arise at settlement, including lien resolution, Medicare compliance, government benefits preservation, trusts, and the protection of financial recovery. So thank you both for joining us today. Jason, um, I think most of our audience is probably familiar with structured settlement annuities, but in case we have some listeners that are newer to the concept, could you maybe give us just a brief description? Yes, so for workers' comp claimants, and carriers, it's a financial mechanism to take the lump sum settlement and turn it into a stream of future periodic payments. So in the context of Medicare set-asides, it's a funding vehicle that provides future payments that uh, will provide for the annualized needs for the uh, allocation amount that is then funded instead of with a lump sum periodic payments into the future that under the tax code are tax-free because of section 104A2 and section 130 of the Internal Revenue Code. And Jason, these are pretty specialized, right? There's only um, kind of a handful of companies that that handle these types of annuities, correct? So there's a select few life insurance companies that actually offer this product because it's a specialized uh, annuity product that is just utilized in personal injury settlements and involves the the washout documents in the workers comp cases and in liability settlements and the release so it's it's a little bit different than retail annuities and then there are firms like arcadia and my group that work with the different stakeholders in the industry to assist with the planning uh, that's needed in order to make sure that the periodic payment arrangements via the structured settlement annuities meet the needs of the parties involved in the litigation. Right. And so just wanted to make sure everybody knew this isn't just a product you can buy off the street. You need somebody like Jason or Jeff to kind of assist you through that process. So um, Jeff, actually, I think most of your work is done on the defense side of the case. And so can you speak a little bit about maybe the pitfalls or the potential issues or concerns that you have kind of from that defense side point of view of what what are you thinking about? What are you worrying about as you are working on cases? Uh, Thanks, Jennifer. I would say that, uh, you know, I do a majority of my work on the defense side, but I do also work with a lot of plaintiff lawyers. Uh, But most importantly, I always put the needs of the injured party first, regardless of if I'm hired by a plaintiff attorney or an insurance carrier. And that usually results in a good win-win outcome for both sides. As far as issues or pitfalls, uh, it's very beneficial to get us involved as early as possible so that we can assist in formulating settlement strategies 
to help you settle your case. That's the ultimate goal is we want to help you settle your case. Uh, we're involved in thousands of settlements and have very likely seen a case similar to the one that's sitting on your desk that you're working on. And that expertise in negotiations can be very valuable to you as a claims professional. Uh, we can come up with some very unique ideas that you can implement in your negotiations or at mediation. And like I said, with the ultimate goal to try to get the case settled. So I would say that, you know, the important thing um, is to get us involved early. Is there a difference? You, you mentioned kind of the process. Is there a difference or do you look at the case differently if you're working on workers' compensation cases versus liability cases? Uh, every case is different. I would just say that liability cases are a little bit more gray as compared to workers' comp. Uh, there's a little more leeway in your negotiations. Uh, depending on the venue, workers' comp has more rules and uh, for you to use in negotiations, but we can still try and figure out, you know, what the injured worker is wanting money-wise and work to make that happen for them. And sometimes we can get a little gray, you know, if they have children and they want to set, set aside some money for college payments for that child, or if they have child support issues, or, you know, they're trying to to uh, take care of the future indemnity or in attendant care, you know, we can set up a stream of payments to match all of that um, and make sure that we cover everything that they need. Most all of my clients doing MSAs, uh, you know, are, are, they are doing MSAs in comp cases. Uh, in liability, it depends on the exposure of what the future medical is expected to be. If you have, you know, like a million dollar case with only a hundred thousand dollar liability limit, uh, there's you know, really not much to do uh, as a Medicare set aside, and Medicare likely would not come back for reimbursement of future medical. If the same case has a $5 million liability limit on a lot of future medical, uh, we highly recommend that MSA be set up. So um, do you find kind of um, on the workers' compensation side, um, the defense kind of, um, kind of pushes through or kind of handles the MSA side? You know, not necessarily. I mean, I think it can come from, you know, either uh, the defense side or the plaintiff side. It seems, you know, that usually the carrier uh, is taking the lead, you know, when setting up an MSA. You know, the other thing is the claims professional holds the checkbook and ultimately makes the decision on the settlement, you know, or, or continuing to pay or whether or not an MSA is needed. So oftentimes it is the defense that's, you know, kind of taking the lead on that. But there are cases where, you know, plaintiff attorneys have become very educated and are very smart about MSAs and they want to protect their client from any future liabilities. So, you know, we do it on the plaintiff side as well. Are you finding that on the liability side that the plaintiffs are driving the MSAs? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think it's kind of equal. I mean, I, I would, it seems to me that the carrier probably comes up with it more. But, you know, like I said, I think plaintiff lawyers are becoming more educated and they're realizing the importance of protecting uh, their clients. Okay. Uh, Jason, let's loop you in on this because I think most of your work is on the claimant and the plaintiff side. So I'll pose the same kind of question to you that I, that I posed to Jeff. Um, kind of what are your concerns when you're coming in, you know, from that, claim to, uh, that claimant plaintiff side and you're talking about the annuities, you know, what are the, the initial things that are on your mind that you're thinking about? I think the most important thing from the claimant side is typically making sure that the MSA is not overfunded. You know, there's different methodologies for funding the MSA. It could be for life. It could be period certain. It could be um, temp life. Those all have different costs and they also can potentially overfund. 
the MSA, depending on which mechanism is used. And, you know, for the claimants, most times they, they're looking at dollars they can use for things that are not Medicare covered because there's a lot of realities there for, for the injured worker. If it's a work comp case, same thing on liability and making sure ultimately uh, that the most efficient funding in the, the funding, not overfunding it, is, is important because that, that impacts what net dollars they get to use that are not going to be spent exclusively on Medicare covered services. And then the guarantees associated with the annuity because frequently, and I understand why this is the case, but there'll be annuities offered without guarantees, uh, which means that if the claimant or plaintiff passes away, whatever monies were spent on that MSA, which was part of the, the gross settlement, are not there for the injured person's family. And that's you know one of the big things that we're focused on on the plaintiff side is making sure that the injury victim and their family are taken care of into the future. Do you find that that's often a sticking point in the negotiations? It can be, uh, you know, it, there are different um, policies depending on which carriers you're dealing with. It's unfortunately driven by decisions that aren't made by Jeff or I. It's, it's typically being driven um, by, by someone else. And so it is a lot of times a sticking point because there is an additional cost on the guarantee side. So in a comp case, you know, the carrier may not want to pay the extra dollars that it would take to guarantee the annuity, which then becomes uh, a bit of a sticking point depending on the size of the MSA. And, and there's a lot of factors. Jeff kind of mentioned that there. So ultimately, this is, is really highly driven by, you know, who's involved in the case and the facts of that particular case. So no, no definitive answer. It's just it, each case is a little bit different, but there are frequently sticking points over funding mechanisms and you know, the different policies that different carriers have in terms of what they require. So uh, I know you do a lot of uh, liability work, Jason. What are your thoughts on kind of, uh, you know, really historically, the defense has kind of driven the piece on the work comp side. And as we all know, there's a bit more structure over there. At least you have the option to submit to CMS, although it's a voluntary process. On the liability side, we really don't even have that. Although some of the regions have said, you know, if that case is high enough, you might be able to send it over to them. They may approve it, but really for all intents and purposes, there isn't a structure on the liability side. So kind of it's, it's you know, been batted around the industry. Who's really going to drive that piece? Do you have any thoughts on whether that is best driven on the defense side or if it's best essentially you know, kind of amount of money kind of given to the plaintiff side and, and really they should deal with that on the go forward piece. I think it's to be played out and determined in the future, you know, without guidance and guidelines, it, it's like the wild, wild west. It's problematic because right now there is no one taking the lead. In some cases, you may have the defense saying, hey, we want you know, this language in the release about a set-aside and the plaintiff's going, well, wait, we didn't negotiate for that as part of the settlement. It, it pops up, you know, when the settlement documents are, are being uh, sent to, from defense to the plaintiff, which is really 
poor timing of it. And when I've given presentations on this issue, I, I've, I've advocated that there should be much more collaboration between the plaintiff and defense on liability cases when it comes to Medicare secondary payer compliance issues, you know, because ultimately in these cases and liability settlements, the uh, plaintiff is the one that potentially can lose future eligibility, arguably, uh, if, if Medicare took the position that uh, they were not going to pay because there was a liability settlement. I think that sort of pushes the ball a little more into the court of the plaintiff. And because, you know, liability settlements are are not like comp settlements. They are so different in, in the fact that in comp, you have a carrier that's 100% liable for all future medical, whereas nearly every liability settlement is a compromise. And you know there you could have a $100,000 policy limit settlement, but a million dollars in future med- Medicare covered expenses, what, what do you do there? You know, I think that the plaintiff bears all that risk there because there's really no mechanism ultimately uh, where the carrier has exposure or liability um, in, in that. And that's just my opinion on that subject. But I, I think that what we're going to see is the plaintiff is is ultimately going to take more of the lead on these cases because they're just so fundamentally different. That, that presumes a framework would wind up supporting that. And I don't know, because I, I just don't know what we're ultimately going to get from Medicare in terms of guidance here. Well, and I think, you know, they had tried it back in 2012, right? And that that for a couple of reasons didn't really wind up going anywhere. But I, I think kind of the industry, at least, um, you know, from what we kind of uh, discuss is, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just very difficult to do it because liability is just so very different um, than work comp. And so you wonder if they would, you know, what process or what they would want to do if they if they would do something and put out, you know, a voluntary process, um, and issue a type of reference guide or, you know, kind of what manner that would take. Um, but it does seem to be in the last couple of years, especially that the feeling is, I agree with you, that it's going to probably be more on the plaintiff side than driven through the defense like, like work comp is. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, I lean more towards wanting statute and regulation being a lawyer uh maybe that's just my bias but i do think too and i've written about this too i think without that there is a bit of due process concern because when it's simply policy that can be changed at the whim of who is making these decisions at medicare there's a lack of stability and lack of stability is problematic when you're settling cases if the parties don't know definitively what they need to do that casts some some doubt into everybody's mind and then you have a hodgepodge of things being done i, I would venture a guess that if you went into a big personal injury law firm and looked at their cases and their settlement agreements they would be all over the map in terms of Medicare compliance language that was included in the releases, some of which I've seen says that the the plaintiff agrees never to, to treat with Medicare for future injury-related right. care. So, you know, that that to me is really problematic. It's problematic from the law firm's perspective, from the plaintiff's perspective, and it's problematic 
from the defense perspective too, because there's no nothing standardized out there that you know and you can point right. to. And um, I'm not sure, Jeff, maybe you can weigh on this um, from your defense client point of view, but uh, I think that's part of the key is, right, is the consistency, right? Because there is no structure really on, on the liability side. Um, there is just really no consistency. And I think that's no consistency through the industry, but I, I tr think it's true what Jason said, even an individual, you know, we'll take it not from the big, you know, plaintiff law firm, but take it from the defense side. I don't, I don't really know many carriers who have a very um, robust compliance program on their liability side, like they have on their work comp side for the Medicare set aside piece. You know, I hate to talk bad of anybody, but, you know, this is the government we're dealing with and nobody likes the government, especially around the month of April. Um, you know, taxes are confusing. Uh, the whole Medicare set aside thing is confusing. It would be great if they would clarify exactly, you know, what is expected and, and what you should do. But regardless, you know, a lot of my clients are doing like Jason mentioned and putting proper language in the release, uh, using addendums to the release to speak to whatever, you know, situation that particular injured worker or claimant might be involved in uh, to make sure, you know, whether they are Medicare eligible or they're not Medicare, Medicare eligible or will become Medicare eligible within 33 months. They're all different. So the most important thing is to protect them. And the best way to protect them is an MSA, but it is case by case. And it is also based upon kind of what the exposure is. You know, if you have a large future exposure and a lot of future medical, you probably ought to do the MSA. Jason, are you um, seeing or um, involved in a lot of the Medicare set-asides uh, annuities on that side? Do you think there tends to be less of them going through the annuity process than there are on the work comp side or just as much or Kind of what are you seeing across the board? From our perspective, you know, we, we see a lot less of that. You know, in comp, it's, it's standardized. It's part of the process in liability because, you know, we, we just see in a lot of these cases, it's a policy limit settlement or a hundred grand or 50 grand or $25,000. And the, the reality is, is how do you set aside you know, if the future medicals far exceed the settlement amount. So, you know, unless there's, there's a framework for that to make sense in that particular case and analyzing what should be done there, that there's, from a practical perspective, much less use of structured settlements in that context because of the non-traditional nature of it, non-traditional when compared to workers' comp. At least that's what... That's what I see. I don't know if Jeff's experience is any different from the other side or, or even with you know, plaintiffs that he's worked with. Yeah, I would also just add that you know, liability, like I mentioned earlier, is very gray. And you throw something in like comparative negligence and you know, maybe you only owe 62% of you know, past medical, 62% of future medical. And you know, th there's just so many things that make it so gray that I think it will be hard to put together a reference guide for, you know, that makes as much sense as it does in comp. Speaking of the reference guide, um, before we leave today, I did want to ask your guys' opinion. Um, I think we all know that CMS kind of changed um, the calculation for the seed amount in this newest reference guide that they put out in April. Um, usually that seed amount is kind of that double of the annual and then 
the first procedure or surgery. And what they added in that newest reference guide are four words, which was for each body part. And so now conceivably you have that two years of annual, plus you have um, potential multiple surgeries if you have you know, multiple um, body parts. Just wanted to get your take on kind of what impact you think this is gonna have on your ability to kind of utilize structured settlements, even on the work comp side, if you have a case that potentially has those multiple surgeries on um, body parts. Jeff? You know, under the new rule, I think we'll just kind of see the seed money go up, but, you know, not every case is going to have multiple surgeries, but, you know, requiring the seed amount um, to include the first surgery historically, you know, versus for each body part, if there's many surgeries, uh, it's just going to make the seed money go up and it's going to be less amount or lower amount that goes into the annuity. And, you know, that's kind of where uh, we can help generate savings on either the plaintiff side or defense side. You know, if there's an agreement to settle for a certain amount, it's really nice if we can, you know, save money on the future medical utilizing the annuity. And then for the plaintiff, they can put more money in their pocket. And if it's for the defense, you know, obviously they can settle the case for a lower amount, lower amount potentially. Not that a, that is our ever our goal, but, you know, on average, uh, you know, using an annuity on an MSA saves about 30%. You know, we've been able to do that year over year over year. You know, it's going to happen on a few cases, but not every case they're going to have multiple body parts. Uh, so I think it is an interesting change. Uh, the seed money will probably go up on some of those cases. But overall, when you get us involved, I think we're still going to be able to save 30, 30% on average. Jason, so I, I don't really want to go into the whole, you know, submit, non-submit and go down kind of the rabbit hole piece. But for those cases, even if we kind of put that piece aside, that a comp case that, you know, isn't going to be, uh, doesn't fit the CMS submission thresholds or on liability cases, what are your thoughts on, you know, do you follow that seed calculation that CMS lays out for their submission process? Or, you know, do you still maybe just go with funding, you know, an annual, one of the annuals up front and just let the annuity handle the rest of it? Do you have a, a thought or a preference or a, a comment on kind of how you calculate that? We, we tend to lean towards being more conservative. And I think, you know, adhering to the guidance that we get as limited as, as it is from Medicare, we, we want to, you know, stick to that unless there's a really good reason not to. You know, at least in comp liability, I, I just it's it's not applicable there because we, we don't have anything formal from CMS there. So to me, it's still the wild, wild west. You know, I, I look at liability cases completely different from comp. But in comp, I think whether you're going to submit or not submit, I, I would lean towards following the, the guidance from CMS. Was there any other hot topics in structured settlement annuities that you guys wanted to share with the audience before we uh, wrap up for the day? Yeah, I think um, rates are moving in the right direction post-COVID. Um, I'm so excited that we're beginning to open back up. I'm excited to get out and see claims professionals and attend mediations in person again. Uh, although, you know, Zooms and other uh, types of mediations that we've had uh, have been successful, uh, it is so nice to sit across the table from somebody and get a smile at the end of a mediation. And, you know, the claims adjuster is happy, the plaintiff's happy, the lawyers are happy, and, and the case is settled. And I'm, I'm really excited to uh, to get going back out there. Well, I can't thank you both enough. So thank you 
both uh, Jason and Jeff for setting aside some time to talk to us today. And um, thanks to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to the MSPN podcast. And I do believe the fifth podcast will be about the paid act. I don't have the official title for that, but it'll be up on um, our website. So thank you both. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having us.